What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. I'm your host, Robbie the Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter the Third. My friends call me Chuck. Thought they called you Trey. No, no, no. Those are, that's the trick nickname. <laughs> that's not for real friends. Okay. And our guest today is Chance Strickland. What's going on, Chance? Not too much. Just uh, hanging out, having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Trying to take a little recovery day today. So, as I say, too much <laughs> good fair. time is what you're saying. Uh, a, a tad bit. We, we got into it a little bit before we pressed record, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my voice might sound a little scratchy because uh, yeah, I just had a lot of fun, and I'm yeah. not 22 anymore. So I need to keep that in mind yeah. when I'm uh, vents where they just throw drinks at you. Yeah, we've been having the same problem of <laughs> having drinks and not being 22. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet here I am at a drinking themed podcast too. Hey, yeah, you like pain, I guess. So. That's right. <laughs> I believe in in hair of the dog as as a, a recovery tool as long as you exercise restraint. Yes. In that. So I can uh, get behind that. Have we mentioned we're at Render ATL? I think we should make sure that's in there. Yeah. We have now. Okay. Yeah, I, I mentioned that last time. I, I never know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yes, we are live at Render ATL. Live, but two weeks later, you'll hear hot this. Hot Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's not, <laughs> but it's not that hot right now. So it's it was not, a really it misnomer. Great, in which yeah. I'm from here, and I was dreading the trip because I'm, I'm in San Diego now, and I've adapted to uh, dry and pleasant. Yes. Um, although it's been a relatively cold and wet year relative to San Diego norms. Yes. But I got here and it feels great. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised and happy. Yeah, great. I agree with that too. We're not going to talk about weather all podcast though. So yeah, we could. We yeah. could. People like to do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Chance, for those who don't know you and don't know what you do, tell the people a little about yourself and what you got going on. Sure. Well, so my name is Chance Strickland and I'm a software engineer. I work for a company, a small startup called Replo, which is a brand new position for me. I... If anyone already knows me out there, it's probably because I worked on the Remix core team for a while. I started on that project, I think it was employee one or two, very early on with uh, Michael and Ryan building Remix. And before that, I worked with them at React Training and doing React workshops for people that needed to learn React, I guess, for a lot of people. Taught a lot of workshops over the years. And I've also worked on some pretty high profile open source projects, uh, Radix UI, in the React ecosystem and, and Reach UI, both comparable uh, UI libraries, lower level accessibility focused UI libraries. So I uh, worked on those for quite some time. So it's interesting to be back in the, the product world because I've been so far removed from that. And uh, it's very different building products for developers than it is for regular people who think about very different problems. Yeah, it's a whole different uh, mindset to reframe your users from developers who are technically astute and getting in into code and APIs versus using a using an actual product. So that's yeah, and it, and it really shapes how you think about not only think about the code that you write, but how you prioritize your time and, and, and spend your time writing that code. Like one of the, the challenges I'm learning in making this adjustment is I can no longer sit around and spend like half a day thinking about like a function API, mm -hmm. right? right? Because my users don't care about that anymore. Right. Like my users are not the developers who are interfaced with through that function. They just use an application. And so now it's more about shipping the actual app than it is about perfecting the art of the code, so to speak. So yeah, it's an interesting set of challenges and it's it's an adjustment to get there. It's a really like train your brain to not care about things anymore. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> well, different yeah. things. Right. Well, of course. I mean, yeah, just it's just the things that I've been 
I've like adapted to care about are no longer as important. Yeah. I'm going to put a pin in that for a moment. And I think we should get to a little bit of whiskey sure. first. And then I think we can like introduce that whiskey, Chuck. Oh. <laughs> what do we got today? Well, uh, it's a brand that had been known as the famous old brand for quite some time, but more commonly to the Wagner household as chicken cock. <laughs> so we're having the chicken cock bourbon. It's 90 proof. It's not age stated, but as uh, Kentucky straight Bourbon whiskey, by law, must be at least four years. And the mash bill looks like a 70% corn, 21% rye, and 9% malted barley. The interesting thing about this brand is it's actually one of the oldest brands of bourbon in the United States. It was originally from Paris, Kentucky, went through prohibition, and then kind of died off post-World War II. And then recently, a company in Bardstown has revived the brand and started doing like a bunch of different expressions of it. So... Should be pretty interesting. I'm excited. So it actually, yeah, it's not sourced. It's actually uh, distilled within Kentucky and and bottled there. So that's rare. Cool. Yeah. Sometimes everyone sources. Yeah. Everyone sources these days. When you introduced this to me earlier, you said, this is the fun one to say. And I appreciate that you had a lot of fun saying it. (laughs) I am an infant and I will continue to have fun saying chicken cock. As well you should. Well, it's Robbie's nickname. Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. I do like the bottle as well. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's got kind of like, like chicken a wire, chicken wire feel to oh, it. Oh, I kind of went with honeycomb, but that makes yeah. way more sense. Yeah. More than I should have poured. Here you go. Mm-hmm. You're fine. Thank you. I don't begrudge you that. Uh, all right. I just forgot for a moment that this is straight liquor and not, you know, mixed drink. <laughs> yeah. We'll add a little Diet Coke, splash Diet Coke in there for you later. All righty. I keep ending up with the bottle at the end with no cap, and it makes me nervous. Okay, here. Pass Can this you pass down. me the <laughs> All right, so I'm getting some kind of like a brown sugar. It's very sweet. 70% corn is definitely going to do that. Very sweet. Mm, Smells pineapple-y to me. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I got a slight fruit tinge and a slight like brown sugar kind of smell, but it does have like just a sweetness overall in the aroma. Yeah, I'm not not trained in the art of... It's all bullshit. Yeah, we make it up. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Just think of like your favorite candy. I wasn't going to say that, but I was pretty sure you were all. Uh, I'm yeah. getting like a dried apricot uh, flavor. Oh, that's something you've never gotten before. Yeah, dried yeah. apricot, a little. <laughs> uh, taste a bit brown like sugary. Dirty sweatpants. <laughs> I use the descriptor new Nikes a lot, like yeah. new shoes. He has done that. Yeah, like the new rubber of, of Specifically shoes. Nikes. Though. New Nike rubber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I get a slight like vanilla finish with a little nutmeg too. But it has all like a lot of sweeter flavors. Tastes like sweet whiskey to me and I'm not not mad about it. No, no. It's not, yeah, it's I think not it's a bad good. thing. No sugar added. Federally regulated spirit here. Of course. Do some places add? Well, I guess like a flavored one would add mm-hmm. sugar. Yeah, sure. Remember that weird banana one you had us try? That one was good though. It actually was better than it sounds. Well, bourbon has rules, right? Like yes. there's specific, I mean, obviously it has to be made in Kentucky, but like, Oh, nope, that's not a true, I, not a rule. Apparently. So I was wrong. Kentucky street bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. That's a misnomer that a lot of people think though. I it, thought that, I thought that, I thought for the that longest too. Time, yeah. Yeah. So bourbon can be made anywhere in the United States, but it has to be uh, at least 51% corn in the mash bill. It has to be aged at least four years in brand new charred oak barrels. Okay. It has to go into the barrels at a maximum of, I think, like 120, 125 proof. Okay. For the aging process and cannot have any artificial flavorings. It's basically the only thing that makes Jack Daniels not bourbon is the fact that they filter it in uh, maple flavored charcoal. 
I learned so much just now. It's funny, I've been to the Jack Daniels tour and you'd think they would have said something along those lines and I would have remembered, but I, I don't. Yeah. They don't care about being bourbon though. No, they don't. I was born in Kentucky and so it was taught in like uh, grade school. So yeah. <laughs> no, not really. They went through ABC and then, then went straight into that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then they're like, oh, you got a toothache. And B stands for bourbon. And today we're going to learn all about bourbon. <laughs> hey, boy. hey boy, you got a, you got a toothache there? Here, I got a little whiskey for you. I mean, they actually used to do that. That's a grandma's thing. Put a little whiskey on, uh, on your toothaches. Now I know. Yeah. Knowing's half the battle. Yeah. That's what G.I. Joe used to say. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All righty. So we'll get into the rating portion of it. So cleverly using our expert rating system from the octopus, one to eight tentacles, one tentacle being terrible. Never give this to me <laughs> <Okay>. again. Eight <laughs> tentacles being amazing. I never want to drink anything else. So it makes four like pretty decent still in the middle. Okay. And just compared to whiskeys that you like to drink in general, like how you would rate this. Okay. Seems very arbitrary. Oh, it's absolutely arbitrary. Oh, yeah. If I had a, like a row of whiskeys and I was comparing them, I'd be all over this. But now I'm just like, ah, oh, I, I liked it. I liked yeah. it quite a bit. So yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with uh, six only because the two tentacles that I would reserve would be because of, it maybe it's a touch too sweet. Yeah. For my taste. Like I, I do want something a little bit drier, but overall I do like the flavor. I like the smell. And I could imagine it uh, making a pretty tasty Manhattan or something. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's uh, how much did this cost, Chuck? So bear in mind, this came through like DoorDash. So there's always like a premium added on to that. But I want to say it was like 60, 65, something like that. I think like their their basic offering is around 50 bucks. Okay. So this is like their intro one and they have some age stated ones and a few other varieties. But yeah, I'm going to say let's give it 50, 60 bucks, something like that. Okay. With that in mind, I'm going to say, I might say six too. I think it's pretty good. It's... um. It's maybe not super good for that price point, but everything's expensive these days. So, right. you know, like comparing to the Buffalo Trace being yeah, really cheap. Except for like that, there's that peanut butter whiskey now that everyone drinks. <laughs> oh. I've tasted it once. It's so yeah, bad. Yeah, I took the tiniest sip what and what is it called? Screwball. It's called Stupid Fucking Decision. But it's also so incredibly cheap. At least the ones at the liquor stores near me, it's like you can get a handle for... 20 bucks or something. Yeah. It's like yeah. In San Diego, which is right. Ridiculous. Yeah. That's yeah. I was like, yeah. it can't be good. No, it's price. not. Yeah. It's not good. They include it free in a lot of the orders we do. And I, I'm like, nope, trash. Yeah, I was going to say, the only reason why I've tried it is because I was given a shot for free. Oh, yeah. same. And uh, I sipped some of that shot and threw it the rest out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was watching a football game at, at a bar and they came out and it was like a touchdown thing where team scores, they bring out whiskeys for everyone. And I was like, sure, I'll have a shot of whiskey. They did not yeah. tell us that it was the dreaded peanut butter whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> you really got to warn people about that. As soon as you hear it, you're like, no, come on. No, <laughs> yeah. you didn't. Yeah, oh, you did. Okay. I'm going to say Screwball is a one tentacle for me just because we haven't included a zero on our scale, but I would probably cut off all the tentacles of that octopus rather yeah. than... You would take the octopus and throw it in the trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah just throw that trash in. <laughs> Poor octopus. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather have Fireball than that stuff. And that is saying something. That stuff is horrible too. Fireball has its time and place. Ugh. Yeah, it was like 20 years ago for it's me. It's edible. Just not after... Yeah, it's bad to say, just not after the age of 30, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so that's reasonable. Well, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling in the six-ish zone I try not to like go in the middles. I mean, because this isn't uh, Star Search or whatever. I think it's as a sweeter whiskey, it's good. You usually kind of think about something like Maker's Mark, a weeded whiskey that have like the sweet side of it. I probably would like to try one at a higher proof. I think I'd like to balance it with a little more heat, like maybe 100 proof or so. 
And that maybe that would give something to it. So, but I'm going to give it six tentacles. It's good. I'd have it again. I think it might make some really decent, like lower ingredient, like more alcohol forward cocktails. I'm interested to try more chicken cock. Yeah. You can't have too much chicken cock. (laughs) (laughs) They're small. (laughs) Yeah. The small batch. Yeah. Yeah, Small batch. (laughs) Well, that's it for us, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) We've been canceled. Maybe we should talk about a few technical things. We uh, have a set of questions that we try to ask uh, our guests and their quote unquote hot button issues on tech Twitter. So obviously not that serious. And it's really more about personal preference. Yeah. 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 You know. Let's knock these Uh, out. Okay. So. As far as TypeScript goes. Yes. Inferred types or explicit types? Depends. That's honestly going to be the answer to every question you ask, unfortunately, because I don't really do hot takes like that. But I will say... <laughs> we'll all take a side. I, I, can I can try and like go into a little bit more detail. So I say it depends because, I, again, I, I spend a lot of time writing library code. Yeah. And in library code... Oftentimes you want explicit types because you need to expose those types to your users. You want, But you want to... You want to type your functions and your utilities in a way that users can benefit from inferred types because in application code, in most of the code you write, being able to infer those types, I think, is is really nice. When I was working on the Remix team, this came up quite a bit because are you familiar with the Remix? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We talked to Ken. Okay, of course. So, um, so one of the core ideas or one of the core models and remixes the route module, uh, which is essentially just a file that exports a bunch of functions. And the challenge with that is when you have like a module that has a very specific shape and all of the parts are interrelated from a, from a types standpoint, TypeScript can't really like look at your file structure, your file tree and like figure out based on the file name that this parameter is supposed to exist. I mean, it doesn't know your, your file name conventions, right? It also doesn't know how to like look at functions that are just standalone exports and understand that those things are related. Like if you wrap them up in a closure of some sort and you you typed it as such, sure, you could do that. But just as these single exports, you can't do that, right? So you have your loader export, your action, your default component, and all of those can, can use, well, they can all sort of like use data from each other in one way or another. So you, in order to get any sort of type information, from, let's say you have, you return some uh, data from your loader function and you want to know what the shape of that data is by the time it reaches your component and renders, right? You would need to access that through the use loader data hook, but you'd have to manually add the type information there. It's a generic function and you'd have to pass the type of the data to get that back, right? And so in the early days, that's what we did. And that was really your only option. You had to explicitly type that data if you wanted to share it between places. And, you know, we got some pushback for that. And I was sort of on team, let's not change anything because there's a danger in lying to people about types. Right. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to get into a situation where you, you try and like trick TypeScript into inferring something in a way that is, you know, TypeScript doesn't have the necessary context to guarantee that contract, but it satisfies you because now you have autocomplete and all of the things that we like about TypeScript, right? So we kind of pushed back on some of the proposals because they felt like a, they felt like a little bit of, of lying or trying to trick the compiler. And where we sort of landed on this, I think is actually really interesting and nice solution for users, uh, which is that as that generic parameter to use loader data, instead of typing the, the data, you can actually just look at the type of the loader function itself. And it will, if it takes that function instead of a data type, it can then infer 
the data from the shape of the returned object from the loader. And so you no longer have to explicitly type your loader data in that case, and you, you can infer it in that way, even though you do still have to pass a, a generic or an argument to that uh, function. So I guess that's a roundabout way of saying, like, I like inferred types as a user, as a user writing application code. It's really, really nice, but when you're writing library code, sometimes you really do need to explicitly type things. And there's just certain cases, too, where there's, like, different relationships between functions or or libraries or modules where sometimes it just makes sense and you want to explicitly guarantee that your type looks a certain way, which is also something that we can, you can sort of have the best of both worlds now with the satisfies keyword, mm. um, which is a pretty new addition. Mm. Never works for me. No? <laughs> I don't understand oh, I love, why. I love it. Uh, I try it and it's like, no, you didn't oh, do it right. No, we found so many use <laughs> cases for it. Uh, basically, as soon as I started at Replo, I was looking through and, and doing some some work on a new feature and found some really good use cases where you can basically express a very broadly defined type and then narrow it down by just using type inference, but just making sure that you say, this has to satisfy this larger type. So as soon as you break that contract, TypeScript will know and it'll yell at you. But when you go to use that type somewhere else of the actual declared variable or function, it knows a lot more information about that, that value. So it's much stronger type safety with the guarantee that you're always satisfying that contract that you established explicitly, so, which I like. So I think that that's a great response in the sense, too, of what, you're, what you were talking about earlier, like what your previous role into now and having this like diametrically opposed context view as to creating the library, being the consumer of the library, your output being satisfying developer needs versus satisfying product and business logic needs around those things, right? So I think that when you said, my answer is depends, I felt like it was very charged by, well, what's the context that I'm making this decision in? Sure. And I think that's a really smart way to have opinions, right? That's every question in programming. Absolutely. There's so much to think about. I mean, it's really easy, especially when you start a new job or you step into a new code base of any kind, really. It's really easy to come in and see potential problems or bugs or things that you would have done differently and feel that urge to go and like smash everything down, start over, fix it, you know, make it better. But then you learn the historical context about why decisions were made. And when, when those sort of contextual details come into play, things start to make a little bit more sense and you're able to sort of step back and resist that urge. And I think it's really important sometimes to recognize that when you feel that way, about code you've written or anyone else, uh, think about that historical context and understand that because somebody wrote a blog over here that said this pattern is bad or this is an right. anti-pattern, yeah. you can't just come in and, and swing a hammer at everything because you read someone somewhere said this, right? Like you have to think about all of that context and understand. And sometimes it does need to be rewritten. Sometimes things are bad and, and that's fine. But, you know, it's always a more, it's a more complex, nuanced set of decisions that lead you there. Yeah, there's... N- usually not one right answer, right? Unless you're asking about Tailwind. <laughs> so go ahead and ask about Tailwind then. <laughs> Can we not, man? Like, well, I guess it's safer here than on Twitter because, you know, if people want to rage reply to this podcast, I'm never going to hear it. Yeah, so you won't. that's fine, you know? No, you can find Chance on Twitter at... Uh, <laughs> um, send your hate mail yeah. to... No, um, <laughs> to Robbie that's at right. shipshape.io. <laughs> No, that's that's only where Russians send things. Literally anyone else because I don't care. No, um, I mean, we can talk about it. Yeah, and I think that's valid. I, you don't have to care. Yeah. So let's talk about it. I have a, a very strong love for CSS. It was my 
you know, I have a former life as a designer and CSS was my first way to express myself in terms of code in a way that connected with my design sensibilities. And uh, like many people, I think of my age who got their start in programming, we had MySpace and we wanted to make, mm-hmm. you know, I had bands in high school and I wanted to make our MySpace page look very punk rock. Oh yeah. Div overlays for the yeah. win. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> so, you know, we got to style the world with uh, CSS and it was awesome and I enjoyed it greatly. And I really just fell in love from a very, uh, in the very early times with CSS as a first entry point to programming. And I say all that because a lot of people think that, uh, you know, if you like Tailwind, then you must not like CSS. Or if you like CSS, then you're not allowed to like Tailwind, which is all just incredibly silly. Tailwind really is just, yeah. it's a tool built on a, princ- on a CSS principle, right? The principle, like a utility for CSS. And it, it is literally impossible to use Tailwind if you don't already know CSS. Because they're shorthand CSS properties, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think when people say that, what they mean is the, you know, what, the part of CSS that people, I guess, either don't like or like is really, I think it's the cascade, right? Or just yeah. naming things. Those are sort of the two things that people yeah. get hung up on. Naming. Yeah. The naming is the problem for me. Yeah. yeah. And it's a problem for a lot of folks. I totally get it. It's what I liked about BEM is they gave me a structure yes, for naming. A hundred percent. And which, you know, if you gave me a Greenfield project, told me to do it exactly how I wanted to do it today. I probably, honestly, I'd use like SAS with BIM naming structure because that is, that's where I'm most productive. And I feel like that holds up for me over time. It's, it's a battle-tested methodology and it works really well. However, I totally understand how people get hung up on naming things, how they get hung up on cascading effects and how easy it is to shoot yourself in the foot if you're not careful sticking to these conventions. And Tailwind then comes in and says, you know what, you don't have to think about any of that anymore. We're going to think about it for you. And now you can co-locate that, the CS, the style declarations alongside your markup, just by the way, as we tried to do with CSS and JavaScript, right? It's sort of like meets both of those needs, I think. And I think it's a great tool. It's, would it be my first choice? Maybe not only because it's not what I'm most productive in. Yeah. So that's, it's really like a personal taste thing. Yeah. But it's an excellent tool. It has shortcomings to be sure too. And sure. And you know who knows about the shortcomings more than anyone is Adam. The team uh, is Adam. Yeah. People who build Tailwind know the shortcomings, which is why they've built incredible tooling around it yeah. to compensate for that. So their VS Code extension is fantastic. Yeah. The plugin ecosystem around that the community has uh, filled in there is fantastic. There's utilities like Tailwind Merge. So there are ways to to deal with those shortcomings in a way to reduce the impact of them and make the experience of using it much, much smoother. So yeah, I think it's a great tool. We used it on the Remix team. Everyone in the Remix team loved it. So yeah, I'd say for me personally, Maybe not, but that's just because I wrote CSS for so long and feel really productive in it. And and you enjoy it. And I enjoy it, yeah. yeah. I think that's probably a, di- a difference in it. And it's totally fine to admit that, too. Yeah. To be like, this decision is not purely technical. I just love doing it this way, and I'm going to yeah. do it this way. Yeah, like, you're going to put passion into, like, dialing it in and doing the right thing, and I think, like, that's great. I don't want to do that, and I didn't even well, like you don't Taylor. like either. You don't want any styles. I don't like either, to be honest, but... Plain I'm, black and white text. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> just HTML. It, it's the way it's supposed yeah. to be. The fastest it's website in the world is the one with no yes. JavaScript and no CSS. Right, right. exactly. Astro knows. Or you just don't even need that. I'm just going to FTP all of my <laughs> sites from now on. Single index.html. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I found like 
productivity in it mm -hmm. when I'd have to go down that path. And it was like, oh, I don't have to think, so this is fine for me. But, you know, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. Like, yeah. And again, context. So, like, are you building for yourself or are you building for a team? Yeah. What's going to, you know, if it makes you more productive but it slows your team down, that decision has to change a little bit, right? So, yeah, context is always going to matter. So, yeah, same answer as before. It depends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Whiskey Web and Whatnot is brought to you by EmberConf. EmberConf is back in person this year in Portland for a special celebration of 10 years since the 1.0 release of Ember. Been a long time. There are lots of great talks, as always, but I'm particularly excited about one Walk the Line convention in country music and development. That just sounds like a really interesting talk, linking those two things together. And I'm, of course, excited for whatever magic Ed Faulkner drops in his keynote. Always fun stuff there. This year, the workshops are a little different, and they'll be included at no extra cost in a two-hour block during the second day of the conference. There's a lot of cool options there. There's a deep dive into building V2 add-ons, an intro to animations in Ember, and of course, a live recording of this podcast. That's right, Whiskey Web and Whatnot will be live at EmberConf recording an episode in person. So if you're a fan, we would love to see you there. Space is limited for all of the workshops, so register soon to make sure you get space in your preferred one. I'm definitely excited to be back in person this year and hope to see Ember Friends new and old in Portland July 20th to 21st for one of the best conferences in the business. Get your tickets now at emberconf.com. What's our next one? Chuck, let's see. Uh, well, I don't know if you wanted to keep doing hot takes. Get rebased or get merged. I merged for a long time and recently jumped on the rebase train and I don't think I'd go back. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah, rebase is just one of those tools that felt so potentially scary. Mm -hmm. Where like when it worked really easily and well, I was like, okay, this is great. I get it. like the linear history. I love it. But especially early on when I was still learning Git, you know, you get into a situation where there's a conflict or you have to like sort of pause in the middle of your rebase. Then it was always like overwhelming. Like, oh shit. How was that? Yeah. yeah. What does this look like? How do I fix this? Yeah. How do I get out of this scenario? And and then I just basically said, you know what, instead of learning this, I'm going to just run away from it. Mm. And uh, you know what? I was still able to be pretty productive with that, and that's okay. But uh, I eventually came around, and yeah, get rebased. Yeah. The linear history is quite nice. You can have the best of both worlds now with, like, merge stuff, but then squash and merge when you sure. merge the PR. And it's like, there we go. We yeah. got both. Like <laughs> yeah, there are some trade-offs with that where sometimes you do want to preserve you know, a few separate commits right. for a PR. Sure. Like, it yeah. is kind of nice, especially for larger PRs, yeah. to be able to maintain uh, smaller commits within that PR. So I don't yeah. like always squash merging huge PRs. But from, yeah, for most PRs, I do squash merge them anyway. So it's not, but when, yeah. I, but when I pull down things in the process of keeping that PR up to date, I'm always rebasing. Yeah. For me, it's like, so we have a bunch of people that are maybe not as experienced as like some others. So they'll merge a thing that has like 150 commits. And I'm like, please don't do that. Yeah. So like, yeah. to me, it's the lesser of the two evils that sure. just require squash and merge. And like, then I don't have to worry about someone merging something with 150 commits, but. Well, yeah, the nice thing about that too is, at least in GitHub, if you decided with one PR you wanted to preserve the commits, you just go change the settings. Right. Do it, change them back. It's not that big a deal. But yep. I generally agree. I think that's the better, de the default. Yeah. How do you feel about the signals? No opinion. Nothing. Hmm. How do you feel about hooks? It depends. Uh, <laughs> signals are really useful. They're a really useful tool. They're not anyone's silver bullet for perf. And, you know, 
when people talk about signals, I, I often think about it the same way I think about tailwind and the sense that, you know, who thinks most about the downside of signals are the people who write them and who like implement them in their frameworks. Mm-hmm. Tools like MobX essentially gave you signals and mm. people who use it understand its benefits and its drawbacks yeah. really, really clearly. So it's not this silver bullet for solving all of your performance problems or giving you fine grain reactivity without a cost. I think there's something to be said. And one of the things that keeps me coming back to React, this is a talk I'm going to be giving at a conference in a few months, why I still choose React in 2023, despite all of the other options available today. The thing that keeps me coming back is the very simple promise that React has always given us, which is your UI is a function of your state. You don't have to worry about setting up and pulling down all of your event listeners through these imperative APIs. You just declare that your state looks like this and whatever happens as a result of that in terms of rendering, it's always going to be up to date and accurate. And signals sort of break that contract to a degree. So you have to be aware of that and you have to understand. Like I said, they're a great tool. I think it would be a really cool addition as a lower level lever that React could offer for certain scenarios. But yeah, would it be the thing that I would want as my primary state primitive? Probably not. Yeah. It gets hairy too. Like it's like, it depends. Like you say, like, you know, if you're doing a very nested thing that you want to update the DOM based on, then it gets like, okay, it's not as easy as like, I set this dot foo to bar and I want it to update. Like that's a much easier signal. But like, yeah, I think there's, there's pros and cons to both ways, depending on how complex your data is getting. I'd almost argue that it's not something that React per se should be concerned about. And although like maybe it's a contradictory statement because I often say like one of the most frustrating things throughout like the React ecosystem and, you know, I worked with React back in 2013 or 14, I guess it's 2013 when it came out and we were just focused on the UI aspect of it, right? And that I thought was super awesome and whatever else. But then, you know, to make an application, you were just trying to piecemeal things and use good libraries and think about state and think about overarching and and the router and all of these other things. You're trying to put together your thing. And there were just so many opinions down, you know, there's sagas and thunk and yeah, oh, you mentioned Mobex and yeah. yeah, Redux <laughs> and, you know, just so many different some, ways. There was some chaos there for a little while in the, the ecosystem. It really, and, uh, it really was. And it was just like choice overload. Mm-hmm. And React didn't care about that part yeah, yeah. because everything else was handling it. I think they're starting to get more opinionated and expand out. And I just almost wonder like, that's where some of the flaws and the fallacies of working with it come for me is that getting away from the original paradigm, which was to, you know, give me an input. And if it's different, I'm going to re-render. And if not, I'm happy. And that's all I need to know is my inputs, right? It's like almost dumb in that sense. And still thinking about another meta framework, Remix can, you know, is more of a meta framework, right? Sure. It's thinking about these higher level things. So I think those are more the custodians of thinking about the state model and the trigger rather than React themselves. You know, React goes into hooks and use state and things like that. And I'm like, okay, it does solve a problem, but it's not a real singleton in terms of high level state, Mm -hmm. right? And memory. So I'd almost just say, I wish they would stay out of this decision. And it kind of happens outside of that. And I can see like there are some libraries dealing with signals that are 
happening on a higher level that will do React integrations. What is Yehuda's? I forget again. Starbeam, no one uses it. I know, I know. Because you have to use classes and no one's going to do right, that. Right, but it's React signals, right? <laughs> sure, so. right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't, and this is a point where I just have to say I probably haven't thought deeply enough about it to, to know what the right answer is on this. So if you look at uh, Jason Miller has his Preact signals package, that he has an, a React adapter for that so that you can actually use Preact signals with React. Oh, cool. Hmm. Really neat idea, except for that if you look at, into the implementation, he had to dig into some really gnarly internals yeah. to, to implement it. So, and then, you know, that's dangerous because those are not contracts that are guaranteed right. won't break at some point. So I think if that's what it takes to get there, you kind of need the React team to buy in and to uh, do some sort of implementation or provide you the tools to implement them yourself. That said, I've never really needed them. Again, someone might, and there are use cases for them that I've heard and that make a lot of sense for me. When I worked at Modules, we used MobX, and that's a very signals-like, uh, I don't know if it's technically considered, I don't even technically know what makes a signal a signal, but it's just like an event listener. Naming right? it a signal. Yeah. It's an event system. Like, yeah. you send me something, I react to it, right? Right. That's it. So that's kind of like MobX, right? Yeah. Anyway, we use that at uh, modules on the application itself. It's a very performance intensive application. And so that was just one of those cases where re-renders being expensive actually was a problem. I think for most people who count renders as a performance metric are doing themselves a disservice. But yeah, especially in the days of hooks. Yeah, but there are some really performance uh, intensive applications where you kind of need to think about that stuff a lot more. Right. And that was one of them. And, and those sort of tools are useful. But you have to step out of the React paradigm. And as soon as you do that, you break that contract of UI as a function of your state. It's not technically React state anymore. So I don't know. I don't know the right answer, but uh, it depends. That's where we're going to go. Yeah. I think it depends all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's it too. Like when you think about your implementation and discussing it and justifying it to a user base of developers versus you have a product that has a promise to users and business objectives. And at the end of the day, like nobody cares whether you use React or Solid or Angular or whatever else. And you're able to probably write an application that meets those needs with any of those things. Yeah, it's a tool. At the end of the day. Yeah, users don't care about any of that stuff. They want to be able to use your app and not have 37 pop-ups. Yeah, the CEO doesn't care. Thrown up before they touch anything or they don't, you know, their scroll is janky or right. yeah. just things don't work as expected or there's ads in every corner of the page. Like yeah. That's what users care about. Big thing I've hit a lot recently is like, so I use Arc and it has a built-in like, blocker for a lot of ad trackers and stuff. How are you liking that? Because I just started using it myself. I love it. Yeah. If simply for auto-closing all the tabs, because I'm a tab hoarder and I just like that they go away. It's me, like, for some reason, I don't know why, but having them on the side where they're always, like, you can see all the text instead of them being compressed. Yeah. It gives me more anxiety about them being open, so I'm (laughs) I'm more likely to still manually close them than I would be if they just squished down at the top. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. When I can't see the text, I guess I forget about them. So then it's, it's kind of still a win in a way, yeah. But yeah, a lot of places seem to be coding things with like, you know, it makes sense. They want to say, you clicked this thing, I want to track it or whatever. Sure. But they make their code dependent on that track working. 
to go to the next thing. So it's like track and then do this other thing and it goes block the track and then I can't do the thing. Right. So people need to be thinking more about that and like do a try catch or something and like yeah, is uh, not do that. Is tracking something you'd limit, you'd limit function to the user for. Yeah, it like, I'm sure marketing would have a response to that, but sure. in reality, like if it impedes them from signing up or doing like a critical function, yeah, you would think we're going to let them do that at the end of the day regardless. Yeah, especially if it's a thing that's making them money. Like if I want to book something and it costs money, you should let me do that regardless of whether you can track that I did it or not. <laughs> Take my money, please. Right. Yeah, just a pet peeve that I've hit recently. So we're going to talk about a little more remix things, but I don't want to you know, overly oh, focus on that. But I taught a workshop on remix yesterday, so I'm, I'm primed. Okay, how'd that go? Uh, it went pretty well. Uh, it was a little chaotic just because logistics were, I think there was some miscommunication and ended up being actually two separate workshops, which I didn't realize until <laughs> it came down to it. But there was one in the morning and one in the evening. Okay. So I planned material for like one six hour workshop and it ended up being two three hour workshops. Oh. So like kind of on the fly, I had to compress them down into three hours each, you know? Two separate ones because it's not the same audience, right? Yeah. But yeah, but uh, no, I think it went really well. The folks in the workshop seemed to get a lot out of it. I got some good feedback. And so, you know, unless the ones who hated it just didn't tell me, then I mean, well, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They usually say the people who are unhappy are usually the loudest. Yeah. So if you didn't get any so. like, this yeah. sucked, waste of my time. I doubt it. Yeah. Most people are right there in the middle. They just don't say anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're just introverts. Yeah, if you didn't get any uh, aggressive tweets about it sucking or something, then you're probably good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, uh, if you want to talk about Remix, we can talk about Remix. So tell me what you love about Next.js. It's been around for a long time. It's battle tested. It's a solid framework for a lot of different, uh, it's got a lot of uh, great functionality, the broad ecosystem around it. So, uh, you know, it's another one of those tools where it can be really easy to be productive because of the tooling around it. So yeah, and it's nicely, uh, tightly integrated with Vercel. So if you're already shipping to Vercel, uh, it makes that really, really easy. They do a great job, I think, of on the developer experience side of things like, Handling errors, I think, is always really nice. Yeah. Um, that's something that uh, I, I definitely tried to work on a lot on the Remix side, and we learned a lot from Next.js on that. So, yeah, there's lots to love about Next.js. Yeah, I like that it makes some decisions for you. I, coming from Ember at that time, I think, was uh, the first times I started working with Next.js and, you know, deploying the Zite at the time. The fact that, like... Yeah, it was now, wasn't it? They call it now. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. now.sh. Now. That was the CLI command, right? That was one of my earliest pain points, um, actually, with Next.js was deploying because there was now v1 and they made some huge breaking changes to v2. Okay. That was the moment when I came to really hate breaking changes more than anything else in programming because it just ruined yeah. my like existence for the next six months. That's true. I feel like their their versioning can be a little off or you well, know. Well I think this, it's better now. Yeah. That was like V one to V two. That's yeah, a big yeah. jump, you know. So and if you're ever gonna break changes, I think it should be between V one and V two because right. you learn a lot after V one, right? Yeah. That's when you get users. If you're lucky, right? Yeah. So yeah. you should learn a lot after a V1 of your software and you should react to that quickly so that you don't have to continue breaking things for V3, V4, V5, V6, you know? Like, yeah. For everyone else coming in and as you're growing your community and stuff, yeah. you want to be a good steward of that. Minimize them, but like, yeah. yeah, get them out of the way early. So, you know, I, it was some pain points in the early days, but it was the early days. I was an early adopter, so kind of my fault. <laughs> yeah. Shame on you. Hey, they were in version one. That's production ready as far as I heard. I like old battle-tested, tried-and-true software at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm gleaning that from you. I use Ember, so I agree. You still use Ember? Yep. Nice. Okay. They just released version five, five. not too long ago, if you can believe it. Okay. I'm very much checked out of that world. So Yeah. Most people are. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they're like, what, 14 years old or something? Something like that? 13, 14 years old. I don't old. know when the first commits happened, but I want to say 12 or 13 years old, probably. Yeah. It's got to be Sprout Core was even older than that. So. Oh, yeah. So like 15 or 15 16, plus, if you count yeah. that. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can make a productive business ready application or dashboard in Ember today too, yeah, if sure. you really want it. You know, WordPress just turned 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And power is like over half the internet or something. Yeah. Yeah. 64% or something crazy was a stat that I heard yeah. in the last couple years or so. That's wild. But yeah, just the, the sheer strength of that piece of software that drives so many developers insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it still becomes the de facto choice because users really enjoy editing content. Yeah. And there's, again, it goes back to knowing who your users are, making them happy, and they have a very serious commitment to not breaking things if they don't have to in WordPress, and yeah. I, I just respect the hell out of that. So, yeah. yeah, I think JavaScript needs more of that. It's the plugin people that break all the shit. <laughs> for WordPress. Awesome. Although honestly, like I've, <laughs> I used to do WordPress stuff all the time and yeah. I would YOLO update things all the time on client production sites oh, and yeah. very rarely had problems. Yeah, that's true. That Those were probably the last days I would FTP something oh, or something. Yeah. But uh, I think they had a great time of like getting in bed with on-prem hosting providers and like making WordPress easy installs. Like sure. that experience mm -hmm. too for a user where you can be a GoDaddy customer, you bought a domain name, they sell you something else and you're like, easy install WordPress. Next now go here. Vercel, right? It's kind of next in Vercel, right? Like, yeah. Same yep. idea. Yeah. It's like the entry point, but it's the low barrier entry point for Vercel. Yeah. That's a big business model. I think exactly. Take, making things as easy as possible. Yeah. Basically saying like, AWS console is horrible and no normal human can navigate this. The CLI and CDK stuff does, it makes it marginally better, but it's still very complicated. Let's just put a little overlay on that. Charge a slight premium for, you know, getting your stuff deployed to AWS really easy. I think that's an amazing business model and that helps get people entrenched for the long run. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I, I thought was really positive about the, the Shopify acquisition, and for anyone who doesn't know, Remix was acquired several months ago by Shopify. Yeah. One of the positives of that transaction to me is that there was never a clear funding model for Remix as a standalone company that we could think through long-term that would meet like the needs of you know, high growth demands from investors and that sort of thing right. that didn't involve launching some sort of like hosting platform. And there's nothing wrong with a hosting platform, but as soon as you have a framework as an entry point to a hosting platform, your incentives change. Mm -hmm. And from its very early days, Remix came out and said, we have, we have adapters for different runtimes. We can, you can ship a Remix app on your raw node server. You can ship it to one of these platforms over here where we have these adapters ready-made. You can ship to Dino. You can ship to Cloudflare Workers. That was pretty novel at the time. You couldn't really do that with Next.js or many of the other popular tools that, that I can think of, really, because it's not Vercel's incentive to make it easier to ship your Next.js site on any other platform than Vercel, right? right? Not to say that they are actively trying to keep people from doing it, but that's they're not going to make it easier, probably. Why should they, you know? Yeah, Why definitely they? not. not going to make it easier. And if they need to change something under the hood yeah. that you've latched onto, well, too bad. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, 
why should they? From a business perspective, that makes total sense and I can't begrudge them for it, but I'm glad that Remix now doesn't have to put itself in that position yeah. because they have a different set of incentives being aligned with Shopify. Shopify has incentives for maintaining Remix as it is now leaning on it for internal tooling and for user-facing software building hydrogen on top of Remix. And so it's in their interest to make Remix as robust and user-friendly as possible for many different platforms because Shopify stores, especially third-party uh, stores that build their own custom storefronts can ship to any platform. So, you know, why would you tell your customers, hey, you actually can't ship your app here. You have to pick one of our servers over here. Yeah. They're not going to do that. No. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, the Shopify acquisition actually made a lot of sense to me in terms of like mm -hmm. taking their kind of custom in-house development package and, and language and all of that, what it was, and say, let's improve the accessibility to this and then sky's the limit kind of thing. Right because it's approachable in a deeper pool. Otherwise, you have developers having to have a very specialized set of experience and ideologies and learning and whatever else to do those things. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's an interesting business model to go out into the frameworks world and decide if you take VC money, then you're accountable yep. to other folks. And so that yep. can be a good and bad distraction, I think. Yeah. If you don't, where do you make money, though? Yeah. yeah, you don't make money. Yeah, you don't. You, yeah. you can, but you make it very slowly, and and at that point, you're probably building a lifestyle business more than you are shipping a product that is ready to compete with everything else that's out that is out there and has more resources. Yeah, and which is also totally fine, by the way. You know, there's right. a lot of really great bootstrap companies. We talked about Tailwind, and Tailwind's whole business model is is all, it's all bootstrapped, as far as I know. Yep, and they do great for what they're trying to build. You know. Yeah. And they're able to do that at that scale because with their market and the, their competitor, who is a Tailwind competitor? There's a new one called like Uno CS. There's oh, a few yeah. of them. Watch well, that from the business perspective. The business. So, because I think mm. they, so what do they sell? They sell the UI kits. Yeah. So I guess any other really like UI kit. There's not one that's like tied to the technology like Tailwind. Like yeah. you can get I templates for stuff elsewhere, but yeah, I should research that. I don't know how they make money, but yeah, yeah they have the... The UI stuff, and then you can buy the one-off templates or whatever, like full-on sites now, Next.js and Tailwind sites, and you can just... Yeah, we've been using them. Can't wait to see those everywhere, though. You know how this goes. What was the point I was trying to make anyway? I don't remember. But <laughs> anyway, business, numbers, yeah. success, profits, VC. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the real hard-hitting question that we're here for is uh, you have admitted publicly that you are skipping leg day on Twitter. <laughs> I saw earlier. Uh, I was not expecting that. That was a curveball. Um, <laughs> I mean, technically at the gym, yes, but I was also training for a half marathon. And I'm just, so when you're training for a race like that and it requires a pretty significant time commitment, yeah. you kind of have to start rationing somewhere, right? Like your, your workout or fitness routine, unless you're like the rock and you make money by being in shape. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah, I make money Wait. doing something that keeps me out of shape. So I need to like, <laughs> yeah. you know, keep that in check. So you don't have a personal chef. Uh, oh God, I wish. Um, that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah, I'd love not to think about food Yeah, um, as much <laughs> as I love food. But uh, yeah, so I was running a lot and I do hit workouts to sort of supplement that just because I, when I run, it's easy to just neglect everything here, like above the waist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just want to keep in like relative shape, even though I can't commit to like a gym schedule and all that. So, so I would do two days a week in the gym uh, for upper body, but then for the rest of the week, I'm basically running. So I'd be running five to six days a week, 
doing arms and shoulders and such two days a week. And then, but when I said I skipped leg day, I mean, I wasn't going and doing like squats and lunges and stuff. Cause I just, I, it made running harder. It was a time crunch and, you know, so I just didn't do it. And then after the race, I went in the week after and just did a brutal routine with basically nothing but lunges. And I cried every time I had to sit down or stand <laughs> yeah. up for the next two days. It was the worst. Oof. Yeah. I so infrequently work way. out that I get that every time I do like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I need yeah. a walk. Like in general, you're like, if I don't work out or if I do work out, I just hurt. Yeah. 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 Yep. He's just when he's lifting French fries to his mouth. Yeah. Sometimes too many curls like that. I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you guys? Uh, me, 45. 45? I'm 32? Yeah, 32. Right. He looks I'm, much older than I do, I know. Okay, so yeah. I'm right there in the middle, um, sort of. I'm, I'll be 37 this year. But uh, yeah, there's just like a certain point in your life and you're, you're getting there. You're right yeah. around that age where things just hurt for no reason. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, my knees are gone and I haven't done anything with my knees. Yeah. So I don't understand. You wake <laughs> up and you, you cough and suddenly your back hurts. And you're like, yeah. what, what happened? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. And so when you go to a chiropractor and you're like, yeah. I don't know. And you know, you, at least for me, like I, and fitness is important to me. I, I like to stay relatively healthy, but you know, you can only fight father time so much and uh, you just try to keep him in bay as, at bay as much as possible. That's all we're doing. Yeah. I'm just trying to keep up with my kids for, yeah. for as long yeah. as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have kids, but that's a, I imagine a huge motivator for a lot of folks. Yeah. Four and six and they're getting fast. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. So that's been <laughs> yeah. my big motivator this year. It's awesome. Actually trying to recover from a couple of years of isolation mm -hmm. and uh, even switching to a home gym. It just was very unfrequently used and too many uh, Shake Shack burgers ordered or mm. I'm in Phoenix. So we have In-N-Out, you know. Oh, yeah, I know. So, and it's hard to resist uh, an In-N-Out double-double animal style. Now I just get a single patty, still cheeseburger, no animal style though. Okay. You know, it's, it's the little things. Yeah, it is. No, I mean, it absolutely makes a difference. Yeah. A lot of people go in, especially with dieting, people go into it with this all or nothing mindset and yeah. it's totally, it totally doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah. it doesn't work because it's all about forming habits, right? And if you're in the habit of eating double cheeseburgers and suddenly you say, I'm only gonna eat salads. Yeah. You're not gonna only eat salads. So you're gonna fail yeah. pretty quickly probably. You can generally get, like depending on your goals, you can generally do a lot better for yourself by eating the same foods that you eat today and just eating less of them. Yeah, yeah. portion control. Totally underrated approach to, uh, I say dieting, but just like, nutrition, you know, um, make sure you're getting a broad range of nutrients. But like, if you're trying to make incremental changes, those are going to be the ones that last the longest. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. cutting from a double cheeseburger to a single hamburger without a ton of sauce is a totally reasonable thing to do. Yeah. I feel like every time I travel overseas, I, I actually lose weight Oh yeah, because I move more and portions are smaller. And they don't cook with totally fake oils everywhere. Yeah, it's all real <laughs> stuff. And I typically eat whatever. I mean, go to Italy and I would eat pizza and gelato every single day and still lose weight. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, there's something to be said for that too. It helps if you go to Positano and you just have to go up and down the stairs all the oh, time. Oh, up and down the hills. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what happens when you go to Atlanta? Um, uh, apparently, I drink too much yeah. and uh, am very tired from a three-hour time. And I have fried chicken. And, we were uh, talking about going to Gus's later. Yep. Uh, I don't know if anybody yeah, we went yesterday. Plug yeah. Gus's, but man, love it's that good. place. It's good. Yeah. We went yesterday. Yeah. I got the greens and the slaw. I got the two-piece dark. I wish I would have got a three-piece. Yeah. I could have done a half chicken probably. Yeah. The, the chicken yeah. is really good. I like how when it's not too much breading. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I grew up here. I have so much Southern food in my, in my blood. Like literally, I'm sure there's like 
oil just still just <laughs> hanging out in my bloodstream <laughs> from all of the oh yeah a lot of lard all of the stuff that I've put in my body over the years but uh, that's the one thing I miss the most about when I'm like thinking about things I miss living in California. Uh, just the ability to have delicious fried foods. Yeah. Now we have like the people's uh, guilty pleasure is like acai bowls. Oof, yeah, mm. no. Those are good though. See, I don't think they're that great. I mean, yeah, but stop pretending they're breakfast. Yeah. It's like that's a dessert. Come on. Right, now. exactly. People go into the coffee shop and get one at like seven in the morning. They're like, oh, it's fruit. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, that's a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> exactly. My wife used to like to have them for lunch and I'm like, oh, but then I can't have lunch. And like, I like lunch. I don't want to yeah, like right. replace it with this. Yeah, yeah that <laughs> is a giant dessert. Yeah. Maybe it's like, yeah, it's like a yogurt parfait, you know, or yeah. something like that. Like, yeah, I have to agree with that. I do like the thing about the first time I was ever in San Diego. I think it was in 2000, something like that. And I was living in Cincinnati then. So it was the Midwest without a lot of culture and diversity and food options, really. But I ate a lot of Southern food. You know, I grew up in Kentucky. Yeah, since Cincinnati is what, like, like four hours from Nashville, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, and I drive from time to time. And Northern Kentucky is like right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my grandparents lived in Louisville for a while. And, you know, so I got a lot of other, sure. that Southern food and everything too, but didn't try too much else. I remember the first time rolling into San Diego and seeing fish tacos. Mm. And for me, like Taco Bell yes. or, you know, like Chi-Chi's was the Mexican food option. I was like, <laughs> what are they putting in? This is disgusting. Why would you eat fish in a taco? Oh, no, they're... It's the best. But it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I eat some form of either fish tacos or Mexican food of some variants at least four or five times a week. Yeah. 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 It's the best. I think Mexican food has enough variety that you could eat it daily and not get tired of like in... If you had the same thing every time, it might, sure. but yeah. Sure. And it's definitely a healthier approach than eating fried chicken all the time. For sure. <laughs> True. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can go that way too, you know, on that side of things. You, you chimichanga. Oh, yeah. And with oh, a big thing of guac and oh, sour uh, cream, you know. A hundred percent. I just think it's easier to find healthier options at a, it's like a taqueria or something yeah. than it is yeah. to go to to Gus's. Yeah. You yeah. Know, you're not, there's yeah. Nothing. Gus's does not have an option. They're not interested in yeah. that. There's a possibility that. of vegetables even that haven't been fried. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even the vegetables have meat in them. Like you can't yeah. escape it. Yeah. Yeah. I love greens. That, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Oh, that is, that reminds the funniest thing when we were the first time. Well, so when we were moving, uh, wasn't my wife at the time, but my future wife, and we were moving from Arizona to DC way back in like 2011 or whatever, driving cross country, big moving truck, whatever else make a stop at a Cracker Barrel. Cause you're like- uh, I used to work there in college. I love Cracker yeah. Barrel, you know, some hash brown casserole, yep. like some chicken and dumplings, I can chicken do Chicken and dumplings for sure. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, you know, it's just like- just taking me back. It's one of the better things you can get on the road too, you yep. know, in a pinch. And they're consistent too. Yeah, yeah, wherever you go, this is what they got. And so we go and she loves green beans. She orders green beans, but she had never had Southern style green beans before. <laughs> so she's like, these are- they're like in water and they're like soft and there's like bacon in there. What the hell is this? And I'm like, this is green beans. Yeah. For me, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. you have green beans, <laughs> yeah. you know? She's like, no, you saute them in like light yeah. sunflower oil. She wants sprinkle them with salt. Like, you know, you know uh, almondine style. Yeah. You know? yeah. Which is also delicious. Yeah. yeah, it is good. But I will say was- like of the Southern vegetables, that's the one I actually prefer fancy bougie style Do over you? southern style mm. i don't like southern style green beans okay but like collard greens forget about it oh yeah yeah we need to soak that stuff in in some pig fat and yeah. vinegar yes a lot of vinegar yeah. and the one the like vinegar with the pepper yep. oh yeah it's the love best. that too 
corn, so much corn, so like fried. I had fried corn in lard as a kid too. And grandparents had a quote unquote garden. Oh, your parents hated you. They loved me. <laughs> fried corn. Wow. Okay. Well, you would you'd like deep fried? No, not deep fried with breading, but you'd fry it in some like in a pan with some oh, lard. Oh, like just okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, just everything. Yeah, like had I said, lard mm, for whatever. Yeah. You know, they make their own biscuits with the lard and stuff. Oh. Yeah, if I was doing like cream corn, that's yeah, you're yeah. not frying it, but it's essentially the same fat content, I imagine. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, just loads of butter. Exactly. All things with lard and butter. Lard and butter. Those are the uh, <laughs> the life life force. Well, it's about an hour, so should we wrap up and then we can... Yeah, yeah. You got anything to plug before we end? You know, it feels nice to say not really. Like, I'm... <laughs> I'm no longer working on a developer facing things, so I don't feel the need to talk about my work too much. I am slowly, very slowly trying to build a course called Front to Back. So go to fronttoback.dev and see the very, very early beginnings of my attempt to teach front end developers how to become better back end developers and fill that void. Mm, okay. And so, yeah, that's something I'm working on and uh, trying to, I'm probably going to launch different pieces of it at a time instead of just like having a big rollout. I'll, have different modules we'll, we'll ship out and maybe do some some workshops here and there and just try and keep some content coming while I work because it's a big workshop yeah and it's a pretty big commitment so, so yeah. wait that's the URL that's not your Pornhub channel well it front to be, back could be both. It might be both I never said it wasn't both okay fair enough um, you know that's on you if you're right. searching that that's, I'm not going to tell you not to fair enough <laughs> but uh, yeah front to back dot dev um, and that'll take you there hopefully you already own it yeah. or someone's buying it I do own it <laughs> excellent. <laughs> And so, yeah, go there and you'll find me. You can follow me on Twitter at Chance the Dev. Not the rapper. I just, I'm now on, you know, well, I picked the handle because of the rapper, but you know, <laughs> it actually worked out in my favor uh, very early on in my Twitter days because when Chance the Rapper would come out with a new album, people would accidentally tag me all the time. Oh. And so I got all this exposure accidentally. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. From nice. random people. And I uh, actually got a few followers. They probably didn't stick around very long, but Whatever. nonetheless, that's what I was going for. So follow me on the bird site. You can, I uh, just started using Blue Sky, so you can follow me there too. It's at chance.dev. And uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. I don't have much else to promote. All right. Peace, love, and happiness. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe, leave us some ratings and reviews, and we'll catch you next time. Boom, 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 boom. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io. 